open up your Bibles to the book of Micah, and it's one of the minor prophets. We are wrapping up uh, this series here in a short period of time. It's been a really amazing summer. By the way, uh, I've made use of our team's hard work. Every week, um, there's a team that puts together the podcast, it puts together the live stream. So if you ever miss a week, you don't need to be out of touch with your church. You can just... um, you can just catch up on it. So thanks to Andres for uh, just some incredible messages the last couple of weeks. You know, we always have an action item as a Christian, and here it is. It's to do the hard work of hearing from God on all matters. Sometimes it's super easy. Sometimes it's super clear. But much of the time, it takes leaning in and intentionality to do the hard work of hearing from God on all matters. You know, a whole genre of literature is gifted to us as Christians, and it's called the prophets. A giant chunk of your Bible in the Old Testament are the prophets. And Micah is one of those. The admonition is to lean into the message of Micah, even though it's hard to grasp. It's hard on a couple of levels. It's hard to grasp because it's it's, it's hard because it's hard to grasp, but it's also hard because it's a hard message to hear. It's not one of those comfortable, lovey-dovey messages that leave you feeling good about yourself and others. Remember we talked about this a, a while ago that sometimes reading Micah can feel a little bit like reading Shakespeare, right? To grab hold of ancient prophecies in the Bible takes some effort, takes a little bit of intentionality, Um, And it sometimes helps to have a guide, someone who's maybe studied a little bit more than you and can kind of point some things out to help you on your way. Let me say this, any of that effort is worth it. I can attest to it. Andres said this two weeks ago, it's a hard book to preach, um, but man, it's been so incredibly rewarding. Uh, Stay in Micah. Some of you took some effort to get there. Good. I want your Bible open. I want you looking at it. I think that's really profitable to see the words yourself. Um, If you're taking notes, just jot down Luke 16. You're like, man, this guy cannot get out of Luke. We spent a year and a half going through Luke. I keep quoting it. Luke 16. Jesus is telling us to pay attention this morning. You didn't know that was in Luke 16, and it's not exactly one-to-one ratio. But generally, Jesus is telling us, pay attention this morning as we look at Micah. He's telling about an unnamed rich man and then a poor man that gets named. His name is Lazarus. And he talks about the fact that they both die and the rich man is in torment, conscious torment, aware of what he's missing out on in the afterlife. And he calls out to Abraham and he says, I want you to warn my family. I've got five brothers. Would you warn them of this place? And then in verse 29, Luke 16, 29, listen carefully. It says, but Abraham said, listen to this, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Would you warn them so people don't have to be here? My loved ones don't have to suffer the same fate that I did of not listening to God in life. Jesus reports that Abraham said, to the rich man, the unnamed rich man. Let, uh, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The man replies, and then he said to them, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In fact, someone did rise from the dead. His name is Jesus. He's alive and well. He's the king that we worship this morning. And people still don't heed the warning. They don't heed the warning of the one who rose from the dead. And many ignore the warnings found in the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. So this morning... Let's take a deep breath, let's link arms together, and let's march forward on this. Again, some of it's not quite as accessible as some of the parts we love to go to and read in the Scripture, but it's just as profitable. Uh, We've been calling this series, Just Jesus. And this title image is quite intentionally provocative. It shows some things from our own city that were very difficult to watch unfold over the last year and a half. It's very busy. It deals with raw issues, and this all reflects Micah. Micah was a provocative prophet. He dealt with some raw things of a city coming undone. He spoke things that were hard to hear. The words just Jesus can kind of get lost in all that jumble, but the moment someone says just Jesus, you can look with it, and with some intentionality, you're like, oh yeah, I see it, clear as day. So it is with the things of Christ that that keeping our eyes focused on Christ, seeing Christ in the midst of crisis, can get kind of jumbled and confusing. If we, if we zone out for just a bit, it can all kind of go away. But a little bit of intentionality uh, and keeping our eyes on, on just Jesus, we see it. Of course, the word justice is in there because Micah is a high justice book. The entire message of Micah keeps pointing unmistakably to King Jesus, who would come some 700 years after Micah walked the earth And both the remedy to any current injustice and the power to pursue justice only is found in Jesus. Just Jesus. And of course, what color do we have it? We have it blood red. Why? Because the injustices of the world, hear me, the injustices of the world have been met at the cross. That's the good news. One of the things we see moving forward right now with some of our social uh, Justice warriors is this, law, 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 endless penance, endless recounting of sins, no good news. Jesus meets the injustice at the cross. Therefore, we have forgiveness of sins. Therefore, we can be washed clean. Therefore, we can walk in newness of life. What did Jesus come to do? To reconcile God to man, first and foremost, and then man to one another, such that there is no Jew or Gentile anymore in Christ. There's no male and female. Those aren't the things we talk about and argue about and bicker about. That's a whole other sermon. Let me keep going. Today is about lamentations, about lament. Micah 7 starts off with anguish and grief. Here's what's happening. After six chapters, Micah is now personally processing all of the hard that he's been preaching about. He's personally processing this. We, we saw over the last couple of weeks, not only was Babylon going to come and give them a spanking, but Assyria was going to be used, a foreign nation, to come and give some serious discipline to God's people. Why? In hopes to restore. It's always why God disciplines, in hopes of restoration. So he's now processing it. Remember, he was a prophet for 30 years through three administrations. And things had only gotten worse. 
Look in your Bibles, Micah 7, 1. It says this, woe is me. Woe is me sets the tone for where we're going this morning. This is not a selfish pity party, but a powerful cry of anguish. Literally, it means this, misery is mine. Now, there are degrees of grief, and this is no sort of like basic sadness that's happening. Um, As you saw from the video, um, Matt and the team put together this thing, sort of like an amazing race all through the streets of San Francisco and the hills of San Francisco, much to the chagrin of some of my teammates. I dragged them to the top of Coit Tower. Um, And not only uh, were you supposed to do these challenges, but you got bonus points for doing them with strangers. So we had strangers happening all the time, jumping in and doing things with us. And you could lose points. So you couldn't just gain points, but you could lose points. Now, the Golden Gators was one of the teams. um, And they happened to be awarded 500 bonus points for Christ-like character awarded. It was just an awesome thing. I think there was some other team that may have had it, but I can't remember them. Um, and, and one such instance of Christ-like character was actually caught on a text thread. I just want to share it with you. Um, what happened was this. Um, Matt, was, uh, Matt was our leader. He was texting the, the, the leaders some various things. And Matt said this. Matt said, reminder, you will lose points for being late. We had to all meet back at this little tiny triangle park in some unnamed part of San Francisco. You will lose points for being late. Now, Lucas, one of our leaders, um, he texted back right away. He said, can we have the address to the park? We don't remember where it is. Now, let me just say, this is a tough spot to be in. San Francisco is not the most like grid-like city. It's easy to get turned around in the city and kind of difficult if, if you don't know where you are. Now, I want you to notice my own personal sadness on this issue. I wrote back this. I said, oh man, what a bummer, Lucas. I hope you guys don't lose points. Now, I'm leading a different team, but what I want you to see is this. Look at the timestamp. This is immediate. There was an immediate outpouring of compassion from my heart to my good friend and coworker, Lucas. And, and here's what I rediscovered in this moment. We all know that texting is a terrible medium for communicating, right? So much gets lost, right? Facial expression, tone, body language. Evidently, all that was lost because I don't think it was quite received in the same way. Um, but clearly, here's how I was using it. Um, bummer just literally means uh, used to express frustration or disappointment. Catch this, typically sympathetically. Right? So again, I'm trying to outpour my sympathy to him, and he didn't quite receive it that way. Neither did my daughter, Briley. All that to say this, there's a range of grief, and Micah is not in a state of, oh, bummer. Micah's not sad about something that will be made okay with some ice cream or a vacation. Micah is grieved to the core. When you use the word lament, it's something far stronger than just I'm sad, I'm having a bad day or a bad week. There's something that has just gotten almost into the cells of our bodies. We've been there. It's lament, it's anguish, it's misery. Ecclesiastes famously said this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And in verse 4 it says a time to weep a time to laugh, a time to, to mourn, and a time to dance. Church, this morning, because the text leads us here, we are going to look at weeping 
and mourning. What is the Christian response? What are we supposed to do when the good is gone? So that's where we're at. I want to just define terms. It was powerful to look up the definition of what, is, what does it mean that something is lamentable. It's circumstances or conditions that are deplorably bad. They're unsatisfactory. Or full of, full of uh, or expressing sorrow or grief. Here's Micah's words, Micah chapter 7, verses one, verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Micah's in lament, and he raises this topic. The fact that lament is so woven through the scriptures, in fact, an entire book is called Lamentations, right? Says this to us. It doesn't only give us permission to lament, but instruction and encouragement to lament. Christ didn't come up, God didn't set up some kind of a system that that is supposed to ignore the hard. We looked at sort of a mini theology of pain a couple of weeks ago. Christianity deals with it head on. So before we look at what Micah laments, let me ask a penetrating question. What is it that you lament? Think about this question. What is it that you grieve over, that you despair over? I'm a seven on the Enneagram, and and sevens on the Enneagram tend to want to not look at hard things. They want to gloss over that. They'd rather party and laugh and have a good time. You guys know me well enough to know that that holds true for me somewhat. I'm a pastor, so I can't really avoid any of that. But maybe some of you are are like me. You'd, You'd rather move on and kind of gloss over these kinds of topics. Well, it's hard, but pish posh, let's move on. Let's get to work. Let's go have a party. What is it that is most lamentable to you? Let me ask you a different way. What is it that if it were taken away, would sort of cease to give meaning or purpose to your life? As I've sat with this for a couple of weeks now, this is a really penetrating question, you guys. When you start to really look at this, it actually starts to stir some things up and, and, and it actually reveals some things in, in you. In fact, I would say this, that my lament reveals my intent. What I find most lamentable shows me my ultimate aim, my ultimate purpose in life. This isn't always pretty. Isn't it true that we can hold lofty ideals and speak lofty words, but then a storm comes along, smacks us in the face, and it reveals that our lofty ideals and our lofty words are nonsense. They're proven hypocritical and false. For some in 2007, what they found most lamentable was that their retirement account would go away in an instant. And yet that's exactly what happened. And when the market crashed, so did they. And many people found suicide the right answer, the right response in that moment. Why? Because what was most lamentable to them was the almighty dollar. In cash we trust, it was irreversibly gone. All they had worked for. And by their actions, suicide, it showed where their heart was. It showed what they found most lamentable. What we lament reveals our truest intent. 
I find Micah so incredibly powerful to learn from and model my life after. Micah names three things. We're going to cover three things that are written in the, in the book. I'm coming off camp. I'm a little tired, so we're just going to write it down for you. No fill-ins. You get a freebie this week. We're going to look at three things that Micah very clearly, explicitly names, and they have two common threads. What are they? He longs for the good of other people, and he longs for the glory of God. And when good for other people and the glory of God is absent, when it's gone, he can't stomach it. He finds himself in misery, in anguish. He finds himself lamenting. Now, as a prophet of God, a true prophet of God, Micah has faithfully pronounced woe on other people. Micah 2.1, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. He goes on to say, when it's morning, they execute their plans. Prophets after God's own hearts pronounce woe on others. Why? Because they love truth more than they love popularity. Then and now, it's not popular to call out people's sin, to say woe to you. But the prophet of God loves truth more than popularity. And prophets after God's own heart pronounce woes with tears. They don't, they don't do it joyfully. They don't do it gleefully. It gives them no pleasure. Why? Because it doesn't give God pleasure. They are burdened by, the other, by, by sins of others, and it gets into their bones. So what we see in Micah is this, chapter 2, woe to you who are planning out wicked things all night long and then wake up and execute it because it's in the power of your hands to oppress. Now in verse 7, he's saying, woe to me. Why? Because of the sin of the people. So really powerful to see that. All right, three good things that are now gone and Micah is in misery. Number one is this, it's lamentable that good people are gone. Good people are gone. Verse two, the godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. Verse three, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The good people are gone. And this grieves Micah's soul. There's no one upright among all of mankind. You know, despair has a way of distorting reality. Is it factually true that absolutely no other person on the planet is seeking after God when Micah writes this? No. That's not true. You say, Dave, that was a long time ago. How on earth do you know that? I know that because the scriptures actually tell me that. God always has a remnant. Don't try to read these. This is just the word remnant in the book of Micah alone. I love how, how Andres put it two weeks ago. What's the remnant of God? It's people who don't give up. That's it. There's always a remnant. But despair distorts reality. When you are wronged and wronged and wronged on every turn, and you can't spin fast enough to keep from getting stabbed in the back from every direction, it feels like all the good people are gone. We are living in the land of hyperbole, overstatement, exaggeration. Every headline, every statement, every argument, point, counterpoint, you have to sift through what's factually true. 
Because whether it's clickbait or just I've been trained to talk this way because I shout louder and make bolder statements and people start, start you know, backing down, we live in the land of hyperbole. I think some of this might just be despair. My candidate lost. It must be all those people who voted for him. They're the enemy. This person did me wrong. All people who are in that position are wrong and evil and wicked. Despair distorts reality to to change the facts of what's actually true, to make it feel like every last person on earth is wicked. All the good people are gone. He writes that each hunts the other. What a provocative image that is, isn't it? People preying on other people. And we see this so clearly today. Why? Because the human heart is no different today than it was in Micah. Desperately sick and in need of healing. Desperately lost and in need of a Savior. Incapable of saving oneself. Has all of our advancement, all of our, uh, if you're an evolutionist, all of our evolution, all of our technology and information and all of our gizmos, has any of that added to the fact that we aren't preying on each other? No, it's still there. The biblical worldview says it's a sin problem. It's sitting right in front of us today. You know, oppressed and oppressors are buzzwords right now. Have you noticed that? Oppressed and oppressors. It's two more categories that people want to put out there. Many, many voices are telling you this is based solely on skin color. If you are a skin color of one type, you are automatically an oppressor. If you are a skin type of another type, you are automatically the oppressed. Let me tell you this flat out, that this is emphatically wrong. This completely misses the heart of the matter. It actually weakens and diminishes and clouds the true wickedness that, have you noticed that wickedness and preying on other people isn't limited to a skin color? It's, a, it's an infection of the human heart. It has nothing to do with the melanin in your skin. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying you shouldn't be a student of history. I'm not saying you shouldn't be a student of other people and say, I will shut my mouth for a while. Would you please just speak to me and let me know what you're going through? I think that is wildly important. But don't be duped into into oppressor-oppressed camps undoing Martin Luther King's speech a long time ago that looks simply at the external. In verse 3, it says, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. And this reminds me of another favorite movie of ours in our household, which is Megamind. If you haven't seen Megamind, well worth a watch. The only thing Megamind was good at was being bad. So he decided to be bad to the bone. He went all in with bad. That's what this verse reminds me of. They were super good at something. It was being evil. And so they went after it. When humans are excellent at evil, chaos ensues. Think of our title slide. Think of all the images. Think of this beloved city where I was born, raised, and still live and minister. Chaos ensues. You know, the evil and ills of earth are solved with one simple command. One, that if followed... It would smooth all of this stuff out. What is it? 
Here it is. Ready? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was the utter master of taking truth, making it portable, saying, here you go. You can go anywhere you want with this for the rest of your life. You'll never forget it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You go do that, everything I'm talking about, all this scripture, it would, it would be negated, gone. We'll see more examples here as he presses on. So now he goes from uh, showing dysfunction, or he, he's going to go on to show dysfunction at every turn. Do you know what the fruit is of turning away from God and towards self? It is death. That's it. It starts with leaders. It always does. Speed of the leader, speed of the team, right? So number two, it's lamentable that good leaders and good systems are gone. You know, leaders guide to a better future, and they build systems, they build teams, they build cultures for good. At least that's what God has tasked leaders to do. So leaders do that until they don't. Leaders do that imperfectly, strive after it, but leadership is a tricky thing. And pretty soon leaders are prone to all kinds of temptation. Sin always ruins leadership. Verse 3, the prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desires of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Do you hear the different categories of leadership being mentioned? Princes, judges, people of influence. It's not that different today, right? There's officials, there's judges, there's powerful uh, voices, social media influencers of our day. Micah's conclusion, what is it? Every one of them in it for themselves. Protect and serve, nonsense. Protect and serve my interest. Serve other people, serve the good of the community, nonsense. It's all about me. If you want a ruling, pay a bribe. If you want to get ahead, scheme with influencers and twist justice into your favor. This is hard to watch, but easy to see. It's true in our day, and it's hard to watch and easy to see. Here's what I mean by that. It's hard to watch as in it grieves the soul as leader after leader after leader in every context you can imagine are exposed as as having a lack of integrity. Falling leaders just riddles our human story. So it's hard to watch, but it's also easy to see as in this is easy to spot. You don't need to be educated. You don't need to be super uh, in the know. You can just spot things. Go, yep, I see that. That's a leader that's not in it for other people. Sometimes humility, kind of hard to detect, but when you see it, you know it. A repentant person is the same way. Hard to put your finger on it. What are the exact things? I don't know, but I know it when I see it. Man, good leadership can be sort of like that. What does the law have to say? The Ten Commandments are being broken. Which ones? How about this one? Commandment number eight, thou shall not steal. 
How about the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not bear false witness. How about the tenth commandment? Thou shalt not covet. Do you see it in these few short verses that Micah is laying out? All three of those are being broken. Super clear, super plain as day. A child can spot the sin. It's not hard. God's a loving God. God's a clear God. God's given us what we need to know. Honestly, the Ten Commandments, if you read it, you go, yep, I see that. But you know what? God, God gives, uh, sort of fleshes out the law sometimes. Now, I know none of your children would do this, and certainly none of my children would do this, and I certainly didn't do this. My mom's sitting here. She can attest to this. In our homes, we would never look for loopholes, would we? Be home at 10 p.m. That's a strict theory. Got it? Got it. There's a loophole there. And we go on the hunt. We're like a hound. We're like, let me sniff it out. Let me find a loophole. Uh, leave in a discipline of silence, students, for morning devotions. There's a loophole there. Let me find it. Got to talk. Don't eat the candy before dinner. Find the loophole. Man, we are so good at it. We are excellent at evil. Some of us are so good at finding the loophole. Do not steal. Don't bear false witness so that you can get a bribe. Don't covet other people's stuff. There's a loophole there, isn't there? Look at this verse in Deuteronomy 19 or 16. It says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eye of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is, is giving you. What was Micah decrying? What was lamentable to him? All the leaders are taking bribes. The bribe immediately exposes the heart. Unless you're trying to find the loophole in those three commandments that I call out, uh, Deuteronomy couldn't be more clear on what was going on. Sadly, what grieved Micah continued long after his life. Did Jesus deal with the same kind of thing, corrupt leaders? Yeah, he'd walk the very same streets of Jerusalem, crying out the very same woes on Samaria and Judea. Why? Or on Judah. Because the leaders doing the same kind of garbage. Martin Luther's the father of Reformation. What burned in his soul, what was lamentable to him, is absolution. What was absolution? Absolution was this. Pay the pastor, receive forgiveness of sins. Cough up some coin, you're good for eternity. Taking a bribe for the free gift of grace? You ever want to wonder if God is patient? How does God not just go, boom, on the first priest that does that? God in his providence lets that go on and on and on until a little monk named Martin Luther couldn't handle it anymore. That's the birth of the Reformation. That's taking a bribe. That's wrong. That's sin. It burns in my bones. I can't sit quiet anymore. Church, the landscape today is just as lamentable as Micah. What is to be done? First of all, exposing, talking about it, and lamenting. Isn't it true that I'm going on record as a leader in front of you by saying these things are wrong? That if I'm doing these things, 
You as a Christian brother or sister ought to approach me in love. Say, Dave, you just talked about humility. I don't see humility oozing out of your life. I see this whole church as being all about your name and your glory. That would undo me. I would, I would hear that and go, man, we need to address that if that's true. If you ever come in to meet with me and I'm trying to get a bribe out of you, you can point back to today's message and go, ah, didn't you sort of say that was wrong? So first of all is exposing it, talking about it. The second thing is to lament it. Isn't it sad that I think some of us have gotten a mode of like, of course politicians lie, of course they're not going to come through on any promise. Duh. That's weird. That's sick. Isn't it sad to think that churches might think, well, pastors have a shelf life about five years. After that, they get in trouble with power or sex or money. Those are three big ones. That's sick and awful. That's frog in a kettle, just sort of getting used to this climate of disgustingness. So call it out and lament it. We learn from Micah's example. Consider this. Lack of good coming from our leaders seeps into our systems and our institutions. Makes sense, right? And all that lack of good from leadership and from institutions and ideas and solutions and laws that are passed to right all the wrongs that are currently gone is is under the heading of reform. Hear me really clearly. All the good that is gone from leaders, all the good that is gone from our systems do not need reform, they need repentance. It's a hard issue, church. It is not going to get better with one more department in our government. It is not going to get better with a few more laws being passed. There's no other way. Leaders in most every sector want to protest, point fingers, champion change. But when was the last time? Think about it. When was the last time you saw in a leader humble repentance? I can't think of those times. That seems to be strangely absent. In each season, there are more promises for reform and renewal through policy, but no one seems to be speaking of personally being heartsick and in need of forgiveness. Repentance is going in one direction and not only asking for forgiveness from that sin, but renouncing that sin. We turn back to God with our whole heart. So it's repentance, not reform. Until repentance comes, things will continue to go from bad to worse. And the lament for our homes, the lament for our community will continue. Micah is lamenting that good leadership and systems that are meant for the good of others is gone. He's not done. You know, judgment is coming, he says, not only on the crooked leaders, but on the whole community. Here's another fascinating thing. People take to the streets, riot, post. This is like thumb rioting, right? And what is it? Speck in the leader's eye. Speck in the leader's eye. Speck in the leader's eye without ever addressing the log in their own eye. It's not just the leaders that are going to be condemned, church. Are they setting the tone? Does the Bible say leaders actually are going to face stricter judgment? Yes. 
It's a sobering thing to be a leader in a church, in a community, in a business, in the home. But the whole community, each one of us, is going to be held responsible for our actions. Listen to the landscape that he is living in. Here's number three. It's lamentable when the good neighborhood is gone. Verse five, put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, contempt, and the daughter rises up against her mother. Her, her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. It is lamentable when the very social fabric is tearing apart at the seams. And it's predictable. It's predictable when the leaders are acting the fool. What's the fool? It's ignoring God. When your leaders are acting the fool and seem to be getting away with it, it is predictable. It's sure to follow that the people will just be be like, well, if they're getting away with it, if they're doing that, I'm certainly doing that. Does this sound at all familiar? You've been on sports teams. You've been in schools. You've been in companies. You've lived in a house. It comes apart at the seams very, very quickly. It always makes me kind of curious when people are like, all of a sudden, there's all this chaos. It's not all of a sudden. You plant in one season, you harvest in another. You plant and plant and plant and plant and plant to the flesh, ignoring the Spirit of God. What do you reap? Death! Every time. Super predictable. So leaders play the fool. The community is going to be in utter chaos. How broken are things? When not only the neighbors can't be trusted, but your friends can't be trusted. How sick does sin make us when we have to guard the words from the most intimate of all human relationships, that of a husband to a wife? That's verse 5. She who lies in your arms. That better be your wife or else you got way bigger problems. You're way down the road of sin. How sick is sin that it's, that it's that intimate. Things are bad and Micah is hurting. When you love God, you love the commands of God. They're not a burden to you. They're a delight to you. You've grown to trust them as, as the best thing in your life. You can't even turn it off at night. You just think about the Lord. You think about His commands. You think about what's right. And when all you see is wrong, And it goes from bad to worse. It grieves you. When God's commands are abandoned, things come apart at the seams. People, you've lived this. You've seen this in cities, in companies, in churches, and in homes. Last week, I was preaching at a church in Mountain View on behalf of those who are most vulnerable in our city. That is, children who are suffering from the detonation of their home. For whatever reason, mom and dad aren't together and working things out and loving their children. Some might be incarcerated. Some might be addicted. Some might be MIA, completely gone and out of the picture, such that the city, the government, has had to come in and parent kids. That's a terrible solution. Always has been. It always will be. I am in Mountain View preaching 
And without exception, what I am preaching about is difficult. I get up for it because I care about people. I get up for it because God's given me a platform to use a voice for those who can't articulate, hey, mommy, daddy, you should really stay together. I would sure love that. That would be best for my life. Mommy, daddy, please don't hurt me. Please don't do it intentionally and explicitly. Please don't do it unintentionally. Get help. They can't say that, so I say it for them. So I get up to preach because I care about kids. I don't get up to preach uh, thrilled about it all the time. You know why? It's hard. It's really difficult. I was able to go and preach to a church in Mountain View, and I thought about this on the way home. I said, God, I would love it if someday I never need to go preach another sermon at another church on this topic. What if the good wasn't gone from our neighborhood? What if the good wasn't gone from our homes? What about these families that are hurting and struggling? Where are the extended family? Where are the communities? Where are the churches in their neighborhood who could have come in, stepped in, and maybe kept this family together? Let me tell you one of the things I'm most excited about here. It gets talked about less than foster and adoption. It's called kinship fostering and adoption. You know what kinship fostering and adopting is? It's when a family member says, you're not going to let this child in your broader family slip through the cracks and go to the government. I'm going to step in and do my part. I'm going to be the safe and loving home that's going to give an exceptional sacrifice in exceptional ways to make sure that they don't enter the foster care system in the United States. We have that going on in our church. I long for the day I never have to leave this church to go preach at some other church about Foster the Bay, Foster the City. But for now, I do. Sin destroys and children bear the brunt. Look at this passage again. Think of some of the, some of the commandments, plain as day. We're teaching our kids the Ten Commandments. Little Tate will say, Mom, everybody's breaking the Eighth Commandment. Like raising little Pharisees. I'm not sure. I I think it's a good thing still. But kids get it. Super easy. Honor your father and mother. Commandment number five. Don't lie. That's number six. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff or your neighbor's spouse. How clear is that? Super clear. Guys, it's not a knowledge problem. It's not that we don't know this. A child knows this. It's actually written on our hearts to know this. That's wrong. A four-year-old can rage at their parents because they know something's broken and wrong. They can't articulate it, but it's been imprinted on their heart what's right. It's not that we don't know. Neighborhood Bible Church, we are blessed Church, you are blessed. You're blessed to be a blessing in this neighborhood. This good neighborhood is going away. I've lived here my whole life. I don't look with nostalgia on my early days thinking there was no sin in San Jose before. But you can feel the tide pushing against Christianity, pushing against the teachings of the Bible. We are blessed, neighborhood Bible church, to be a blessing for the neighborhood. Go back last January, listen to a four-part series 
called a beautiful day for the neighborhood. That's why God has put us here. We have work to do. I pray that our hearts are broken, that we cry for the things that matter most. What's that? The glory of God and the good of other people. You want to invest your life in things that will never, ever, ever, ever go away? God and the souls of people. What's the third thing I know of? The eternal word of God. Give yourself to those things. Let me have the band come on up. So lament and then follow Micah's example. What's Micah's example? Look at this, verse 7. It's in your notes. But as for me, after all this hard stuff's gone on, he says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the, for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He calls out all the junk, all the hard, all the judgment that's coming. He laments. And then he drops his response. He says, but as for me, I don't really care about what anyone else is doing. I don't care what anyone else is telling me I'm supposed to be doing in this moment. As for me, what? I'm going to look to the Lord and wait for God. In your sermon notes, under community questions, your plan of action is just verse 7. Go and ask the Lord, how am I supposed to do this, God? I'm supposed to lament and then cry out to you and wait on you. Teach me how to do that. Church, this is the Christian response. Look to God. Wait on God. Cry out to God as your Savior. Listen. And then promptly do what He tells you. Some people think that lamenting and waiting on God is doing nothing. Some have called your commitment to prayer as simplistic thinking that won't change anything. We need reform and policy and new laws. The Bible teaches something altogether different. Our weapons are powerful to destroy strongholds. Not with a years-long siege, but with the push of a button, nuke, boom, stronghold. That's the power of prayer. We're to call out to God in lament and in looking to Him for salvation. God, thank You that You have allowed us to lament, allowed us to grieve, called us to it, but not without hope. God, we hope because Christ is our hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. God, we ask for the grace to lament, to enter into the heart, to call it out, to sit with it. God, give us a distaste for sin. Not to get used to the stench. Christ, thank you for being our hope. Amen.